Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we'll look at Ram Kamhang, the king of Sukhothai, in what is today Thailand. Ram Kamhang was not the first king of Thailand, but he ruled one of the first truly Thai-led kingdoms that was able to unite the surrounding states into something bigger. Because of him, the kingdom of Sukhothai was the basis for the future kingdoms of Thailand that followed, including the one that lives on today. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 7, Ramcom Hang. And this is the Almost Forgotten. Ram Kamhang was born in the middle of the 13th century AD, just around the time the kingdom in the area around the city of Sukhothai gained its independence. He was born into a world whose affairs were being dominated by one group, the Mongols. Chinggis Khan died in 1227, but the Mongols kept on conquering. And while we often think of them as pushing west, they went in other directions too. By the 1250s, the Mongol Empire stretched from the Pacific to Anatolia and included all of Central Asia. They had subjugated the Kievan Rus by the early 1240s and took Baghdad in 1258. They had not penetrated the Indian subcontinent, though, and the Delhi Sultanate ruled over northern India, although the conquest of the Khalji's wasn't until the turn of the century, so southern India still held large Hindu kingdoms. Further west, Baibars was the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. He spent much of his life holding the Mongols in check there, and died in 1277. To the south, in Ethiopia, the Solomonic dynasty began its rule and to their south, the kingdom of Zimbabwe was beginning to build its power base. Further west, the Mali Empire was the strongest power in western Africa. North Africa saw the decline of the Almohad dynasty, which brought several successor states. On the other side of the Mediterranean, the Mongols were a threat as well, in the east at least. The eastern Roman Empire was recovering from the crusade which booted it from Constantinople, and in 1262, the Byzantines recaptured their capital. The Kingdom of Hungary had been devastated in the 1230s and 40s by the Mongols, while Poland had fractured into various duchies. The Holy Roman Empire was, of course, huge, and saw one of their high points under Frederick II, the last Hohenstaufen emperor, who died in 1250. He was the king of Sicily before becoming Holy Roman Emperor, and his land stretched from Sicily and southern Italy up straight through the edge of Denmark and the Baltic and North Seas. Louis IX, Saint Louis, crusader and fighter of slash loser to Bybars, ruled France for much of the century. Henry III ruled England for even longer, even while not counting the years the barons revolted and he effectively didn't rule much at all. The crown of Castile, which was a kingdom, not a hat, was formed in 1230, when Ferdinand III united the kingdoms of Leon and Castile. He extended their holdings to the south coast of Iberia, although the Emirate of Granada still held lands along part of the coast. 
Going further west, the Mississippian culture spread across central North America. Their great city of Cahokia may have had a higher population than London at this time. Further south, the Maya were in the post-classical period. It may have been around the time of the Mongol conquest when several groups revolted against rule from Chichen Itza and Mayapan became the most powerful city-state. In South America, Peru had several distinct advanced cultures, including the Chimu along the coast, but it was the kingdom of Cusco that began to form at this time, which would eventually lead to the Inca Empire two centuries later. And that should bring us back across the Pacific to Southeast Asia. The Singhasari Empire rose on Java and pushed west, exerting control over the weakened Srivijaya Empire, which had ruled much of western Indonesia and parts of the Malay Peninsula for centuries. Meanwhile, as mentioned earlier, the Mongols didn't only spread west, and after demanding tribute and being rebuffed by the Dai Viet Kingdom in today's northern Vietnam, they sent in a large army. They overwhelmed the Dai Viet, defeated the defenders, and sacked Hanoi in 1258, slaughtering the inhabitants. The kingdom didn't disappear, though, and it became a vassal state of the Yuan dynasty of China, the name for the Mongol state there. The Champa kingdom to Dai Viet south was not as large as Dai Viet. Eventually, the two states allied together and fought the Mongols in the latter half of the century, but would both end up as Yuan tributaries, albeit enough of a thorn in their side that they were sort of semi-independent. Before the Mongols came, the Khmer Empire had ruled much of mainland Southeast Asia, east of Burma, for centuries. But their influence had waned significantly even before the Mongol invasions. They still ruled basically what is today's Cambodia, as well as southern Vietnam, specifically the Mekong Delta, and saw localized success and growth in power in the latter half of the 13th century, although they, too, paid some amount of tribute to the Yuan. Moving west from there, the Kingdom of Lavo ruled over a territory north of the Gulf of Thailand, centered on a city very close to what would become the city of Ayutthaya. They were a tributary state of the Khmer Empire at the time, and also held the city of Sukhothai under their sway. But before we get to that part of the story, let's move a little bit further west. In what is today's Myanmar, the Pagan Kingdom, the other major mainland empire in Southeast Asia along with the Khmer, was in steep decline. Regions began to revolt, and the eventual Mongol invasion shattered the kingdom, which had disappeared by the time the century had ended. Before this time, though, the region really was dominated by Pagan and the Khmer Empire, based in Angkor. These two not only ruled the most territory in the region, they were by far the most powerful and advanced. According to David K. Wyatt in Thailand, A Short History, quote, For the major lowland civilizations of mainland Southeast Asia, the 11th and 12th centuries were the golden age of the classical Indianized empires, the period when they constructed their greatest monuments and left numerous stone inscriptions attesting to the high state of their learning. This was the great age of Angkor and Pagan, unquote. These two kingdoms were waning significantly by the middle of the 13th century, but the context of the world that Thais inhabited must include these powerful kingdoms. The Thai people were part of these kingdoms. They were subjects, slaves, or vassals, depending on the individual. According to the Cambridge History of Southeast Asia, 
Quote, the Thai peoples had for many generations inhabited the valleys leading from the Southeast Asian lowlands to the Yunnan Plateau. By the 11th and 12th centuries, Thai leaders were organizing new centers of authority in the valleys of the Upper Mekong, as well as offering their military skills to lowland rulers, unquote. Coming from what is now the Yunnan province, the southernmost province of China, the people that are now called the Southern Thai made their way down into the central region of Southeast Asia. They settled what is now northeastern Myanmar, northwestern Vietnam, Laos, and of course, northern Thailand. They formed chiefdoms or petty kingdoms and were subjects to the bigger regional powers. Eventually, they made their way down the Ping and Nam rivers until those meet to form the Chao Praya, and then down to the mouth of that river in the Gulf of Thailand. This was the time of Angkor Wat and Angkor Prom, and Jayavarman VII. But only a couple of centuries later, as the Khmer influence from Angkor began to fade, and the Mon kingdom which ruled parts of the region began to lose influence, the Thais really came into their own. From Wyatt again, Quote, as late as the end of the 12th century, no regional Thai states had yet emerged to dominate their neighbors. None had yet descended to the Great Plains that alone would support the expansion and enrichment of a population to the point where it could form the basis of a major kingdom on the scale of Angkor or Pagan. That day, however, was rapidly approaching, unquote. They raided the Khmer Empire especially, and especially in the central plains of today's Thailand and they established themselves as vassals in many cases. They maintained their own ethnicity rather than just becoming Khmer, and it appears the locals assimilated into the Thai culture, not the other way around. Wyatt speculates that their Theravada Buddhism helped this along. The growth and power of the Thai people was coupled with the Mongol invasions, and at times, this statement could probably be taken literally. Certainly the Thai in northern Burma, the Shan people, welcomed the Yuan dynasty's backing as they hacked their own power base out of the Pagan Empire. In the first half of the 13th century, a man named Fa Muang, who may have been the son of a Thai chief under the Lavo kingdom, which were vassals of the Khmer, came to power. According to the Cambridge history, he, quote, had in the 1240s, overthrown the regional Angkorian outpost in the central Chao Praya plain, Sukhothai. The Mon-Khmer people of this area had already been modified by generations of Thai settlers, unquote. Fa Muang was likely a hereditary governor for the Khmer Empire. He began as a loyal vassal, but decided to ally with another chieftain prince named Bang Klang Tao. Together, they conquered Sukhothai, a large Khmer outpost in the region. And with that, Famuang handed over the title of Sri Indradaya, which was something that symbolized his governorship. Wyatt speculates that Famuang either didn't want to remain in power after breaking his oath of servitude to the Khmer, or he just realized that Bang Klang Tao was more powerful, and rather than immediately subjecting this newly independent Thai state to civil war, he stepped aside. Unfortunately, we don't know the full story of how it happened, but the history suggests that Fa Muang crowned Bang Klang Tao as the king of this new Thai kingdom, the Kingdom of Sukhothai, which became independent. 
And by the way, I'm not going to deep dive the entomology of the country name, but this particular region is what outsiders refer to as Siam. So while Siamese as a term has fallen out of fashion, this was, at least according to the Chinese and other outsiders, a Siamese kingdom. The new Sri Indradaya was married to a woman named Nang Swang, and together they had five children, three sons and two daughters. One of their sons was Ram Kamhang, and everything we know about Bang Klang Tao comes from this son's inscriptions. Ram Kamhang was actually Sri Indradaya's youngest son. However, the eldest died young. Ram Kamhang was no doubt raised as a prince who would serve under his older brother, the king's middle son. When Ram Kamhang was 19 years old, his father was involved in a battle against what was likely a neighboring Thai kingdom, probably a Khmer vassal. Their leader, Khun Sam Chon, led the opposition. According to Ram's inscription, quote, Khun Sam Chon charged in force. My father's people fled in haste, broken and scattered. I fled not. I bestrode the elephant, Nekaphon. I urged him into the melee in front of my father. I engaged Kun Sam Chon in elephant duel. I myself thrust Kun Sam Chon's elephant so that he was worsted. Kun Sam Chon was vanquished, fled. Unquote. In the end, the success of young Ram Kam Hang helped his father further establish himself as an independent king. This wasn't the only independent Thai kingdom at the time, and the largest one was probably the northern kingdom that had just been started by Mangrai. Mangrai united smaller petty kingdoms in the northern parts of the lands the southern Thai now inhabited, and created a larger kingdom for himself, the kingdom of Lan Na. Along with bringing together a strong unified Thai state, he also founded the city of Chiang Mai and he conquered the city of Haripunjaya, which effectively ended the kingdom who had their capital there and ended Mon domination of the area. Back in Sukhothai, after his father died around 1270, Ram's older brother Ban Muang became king. Ram Kamhang came to the throne after his brother's death. We don't actually have a fixed date for the brother's death, nor for when Ram came to power, but we know he planted some palm trees in 1279. This was an event important enough to record in stone, so some believe this to be related to his coronation. He might have been as old as 42 when this happened. As for the stone, a good deal of what we know about the early life of Ram Kamhang comes from a stele he had carved in what is believed to be the year 1292. It is the first thing we know that uses this script, and it recorded the great victory he helped his father gain back when he was only 19. In 1283, Ram Hang commissioned this new script for the Thai people. Well, at least he said he put all his energy into the project and invented it himself. And hey, that's not impossible. He had studied in a city that was a local Khmer outpost when he was young, and almost certainly learned the Khmer script there. The new Sukha Thai script is sometimes called the Ram Hang alphabet, because when you put all your energy into a project like this, you deserve some credit. The script was based on Khmer writing, which itself was derived from Indian scripts going back to the Brahmic script. This, like the Latin alphabet we use today, 
may well be a descendant of the Phoenician alphabet and is further evidence of the Indian influence over the region, despite the heavy Chinese presence. In 1287, Ramkom Hang met with two other Thai kings, one of them being Mangrai, who ruled Lan Na. There is a legendary-sounding story that Ramkom Hang was meeting with the other king, Nam Muang, after seducing that king's wife. Mangrai was there as sort of a mediator who worked out a payment plan for this offensive act, rather than Ramkom Hang's execution, which tradition suggested as the proper punishment, because killing the king of Sukhothai would cause too much conflict at that point in time. I mean, it's all possible. It's also possible that the meeting was arranged by Mangrai, the king of the northern kingdom, to declare some sort of everlasting friendship in the face of the ongoing Mongol invasions. Anyway, they all left as pals, so Ram was able to focus his attention on fighting his other neighbors. The Lavo kingdom still held the lands to the east of the Chao Phraya, at least near the gulf. But Sukhothai now controlled much of the land on the west side of the river that are part of today's Thailand. He took lands further west, too, into today's Myanmar. Many cities in the south, starting down the Malay Peninsula, came over to him as well. Most important of these was the city of Nakhon Si Tamarat and the kingdom based there. This was a pretty powerful state itself, controlling and influencing lands to the south, and an important center of Buddhism. This kingdom made up his southern border, and in this direction, his kingdom corresponded relatively closely with the current southern border of Thailand on the Malay Peninsula. To the north, he held lands as far as the Mekong River. This might sound confusing, but it isn't the far southern Mekong in today's Vietnam. I'd call this the northern Mekong River, but that's a little inaccurate because the Mekong just keeps going north well into China, where it's called the Langkang River. Okay, so the part of the Mekong in today's Laos, including the Laotian capital of Vientiane, became part of the Sukhothai Kingdom. And north of that city, the Kingdom of Muang Sua in northern Laos also became a tributary. So that's what I mean when I say he held lands as far north as the Mekong. And in these places, according to Ram Kamhang himself, quote, he has established and maintained all the inhabitants of these countries in the observance of the law, without exception, unquote. Because it's in the Steely, we can assume this happened before the 1292 inscription. A Chinese diplomat, or maybe we should call him a Mongol diplomat of Chinese heritage, but whatever, a Chinese diplomat named Zhao Daguan wrote a book that gives us significant insights into the neighboring Khmer culture at the time. He described a war with Siam, as he calls the Sukhothai, in which the Khmer lands were devastated. This war, in 1296, led to more lands along the Mekong River falling into the Sukhothai dominion. To the west, Ram made a vassal state out of the Hanthawadi kingdom. This was a Mon kingdom, centered on the city of Pegu in the Irrawaddy Delta, and we mentioned them in the episode on the king of Burma, Bayanong, season 5, episode 9. Ram Kamhang actually got some help expanding his kingdom westward from a peasant man who lived there. At times referred to as Thai, but likely an ethnic Mon, a young man named Wareyu, alternatively known as Makado, found himself in the Thai capital of Sukhothai. Wareyu was a merchant, 
engaging in some sort of trade between the Mon of the region near Pagan and the Sukhothai on behalf of his father. After making his way to Sukhothai, he stayed on there, working in the court. He was impressive enough that by the time Ram Kamhang became king, he had risen in the ranks at the capital. His rise continued, and he was eventually given some lofty title, making him part of Ram's inner circle. Eventually, according to George Coides in his book The Indianized States of Southeast Asia, he, quote, seduced one of the king's daughters and fled with her to Martaban, unquote. After establishing some sort of power base, he tricked the governor and had him assassinated before seizing power himself in Martaban. The kingdom of Pagan up the Irrawaddy Delta nominally ruled this area, but their weakness is reflected in the lack of immediate response. After establishing himself in Martaban, he asked for Ram's forgiveness. Ram gave him some lofty but subordinate kingly title, and voila, Wareu was the king of Martaban. At least, that's one story. But... Maybe that sounds kind of a bit fanciful. Another distinct possibility is that Makado slash Wareyu did work himself up to the highest levels of power in Sukhothai. And when this clearly intelligent, charming, and capable commoner, who was always in the palace, and one of Ram Kamhang's daughters fell in love, it may have caused some amount of tension. So Ram said, hey, if you go and take Pegu for me, I'll give it to you and you can pretty much be considered royalty at that point, so I'll give you my blessing to marry my daughter. And maybe he didn't just capture the city on guile and assassinations alone, but brought some Thai soldiers with him. There's no evidence of this, and another distinct possibility is that after Wareyu impressively stomped his way through Martaban and Pegu, he simply made a marriage alliance with Sukhothai. The whole rising up through the court and eloping could have just been made up in order to cement his legacy and his ties to Sukhothai. Whatever the real story is, we know that in 1287, Martaban had a new king, and it was Ram Kamhang's son-in-law, certainly one of the more interesting stories of the new Sukhothai kingdom expansion. Throughout this time, Ram Kamhang had to deal with the Mongols, but let's be clear, At this point, it wasn't a massive unified kingdom that stretched from the Pacific to the Mediterranean. We are just talking about the Yuan dynasty of China. Now, China, always a massive power in the region, coupled with the power of the Mongols, was no joke, which is probably why, technically, Ram Kamhang, along with everyone else, were vassals of the Mongols. But the Yuan reach was minimal in Southeast Asia, and consisted more of punishing raids than full-on conquest. Interestingly, though, at some point in the late 1290s, Wareyu sent tribute directly to the Mongols, who accepted it, probably in a bid to check Ram Kamhang's power out of concern that the Sukhothai could represent a threat. Ram Kamhang seems to have, at some point, made his way into China himself, perhaps to one of the great Yuan's capitals of Beijing or Shangdu, and he brought Chinese craftsmen back with him, because during his reign, Chinese ceramic techniques were incorporated into the Sukhothai kingdom, originally at the town of Sawankalak. This began a significant industry for the Thais, and Sukhothai became a significant global producer of ceramics, a boon for their economy. Trade with China, including the ceramics that Ram Kamhang brought back, helped bring about the kingdom of Ayutthaya. This city was an island 
in the Chao Phraya River and in the perfect position to benefit from trade both upriver and out into the sea. The kingdom's founder, Uthong, may well have been descended from Mangrai, one of Ramkom Hang's Thai king buddies. At the end of the 13th century, the Chinese made a reference to the death of the king of Xi'an, as they called him, which could indicate that Ramkom Hang died around 1299, but Kawitis argues it was more likely he died much later, in the 1310s. If he did live to the later date, then he also was the Sukhothai king who sent an army all the way across to the Champa kingdom in what is today's southern Vietnam. That's a hike, and it includes crossing the Khmer lands, which was possible either due to Khmer support or Khmer weakness, and it really could have been either one. Regardless, Sukhothai didn't conquer or absorb Champa, and their land remained relatively similar to what we outlined previously. We mentioned Indian influence earlier, and while that is certainly evident in the alphabet, as well as art, religion is probably where it's most prevalent. Ram Hang was a Buddhist, and he was devout. Buddhism became an important part of what it meant to be Siamese, or Sukhothai, or whatever people were calling them at the time. According to Wyatt, quote, Above all else, Sukhothai was a Buddhist state, lavishly supporting a monastic community newly reinforced and invigorated by a celebrated patriarch who had come from Nakhon Si Tamarat. The king shared the very throne from which he heard his subjects' plaints and petitions, weakly giving it up that learned monks there might preach the Dhamma of the Buddha, unquote. This was not just close association with Buddhism. Ramkom Hang was saying that Sukhothai was Buddhist, that it wasn't just something that they talked about, it was something they lived. Of course, there was a public relations aspect to this, and the tying together of Sukhothai and Buddhism no doubt helped tie together the people of Sukhothai. The infrastructure of the Sukhothai kingdom reflected some parts of the Mongols nearby, which show some amount of influence and of friendly relations. This is especially prominent in administrative and military organization, which may have just been copied directly from the Mongols, perhaps when the Thais were first conquering lands once held by the Pagan and Khmer kingdoms, and were receiving help from Mongol-led Yuan China. Sukhothai was technically a vassal of the Mongols, although it was more of a, we'll send you some annual tribute and you don't come down to this neighborhood kind of thing. It didn't mean that China wasn't a threat to decide the tribute wasn't enough or whatever and send an army down. But for the most part, Sukhothai didn't have to worry about them too much as they paid some tribute and had Lan Na as a buffer to their north. After Ramkom Hang's death, Sukhothai found itself shrinking as vassal kingdoms slowly broke away. It's important to realize that he never personally marched an army into many of the areas Sukhothai annexed. You may have noticed I never used the word conquer to describe the places that became part of his quickly growing empire. Rather, some amount of successful warfare brought neighbors under his rule, a sort of confederated kingdom in which he was the top king and got to color the map in all as his. But he didn't spend his time marching all over today's Thailand and beyond, taking city after city. He ruled the people who ruled smaller kingdoms. When he was gone, their allegiances were, in many cases, gone as well. Soon, Sukhothai was more of a local power, but with outsized influence. By the middle of the 1300s, it had become a vassal of the growing Ayutthaya kingdom. Ayutthaya didn't have the administrative might of Sukhothai and incorporated much of this 
into their own. In essence, Sukhothai managed the northern Ayutthaya kingdom for a time, although this is a gross simplification. Eventually, though, any individualism of Sukhothai as a kingdom, even a weakened subject kingdom, disappeared as Ayutthaya further centralized. This kingdom lasted until the middle of the 18th century, when civil wars and outside invasions led to its collapse. An Ayutthaya nobleman, Taksin, pushed out the Burmese occupiers and led a successful rebirth of the kingdom, no longer centered on Ayutthaya. Ayutthaya itself had been destroyed, so Thonburi on the Chow Phraya River became the new capital. This powerful kingdom only lasted about a decade and a half, when the king seems to have been overtaken by madness and was deposed. The new king, who was the top advisor and general to Taksin, moved the capital across to the east bank of the river from Thonburi to an area called Ratanakansin, the center of today's city of Bangkok. He founded the Chakri dynasty, which helped maintain the kingdom's independence despite colonial threats, and still rules Thailand today. Ram Kamhang was an essential part in creating this succession of Thai kingdoms that has led to today's Kingdom of Thailand. His expansion created the first large, centralized Thai kingdom, and every successor state has built on the Sukhothai culture, which has, in some ways, become the baseline culture for what the outside world sees today as simply Thailand. His stele reflects something about what kind of king he really was. Dr. Don Beach Bradley, writing over a hundred years ago, marveled that he bragged about creating the alphabet, about being good Buddhists, and wrote almost with detectable joy about the prosperity of the people and the justice within his realm. And it's true, he spent more than half of the inscription talking about how prosperous his lands were, how religiously devoted his people were. Yes, this is propaganda, but it's noteworthy just how much time he spent on the people at a time when the people were often seen as pretty expendable. The expansion of his kingdom, the territories he held, was a minor subject, a few brief sentences at the very end. This was a man who wanted to be viewed as what we might anachronistically call an enlightened ruler. The Cambridge Ancient History wrote that he, quote, initiated a policy of gathering vassals that eventually allowed him to claim suzerainty from Luang Prabang in the north to Nakong Si Tamarat in the south, and from Vientiane in the east to Pegu in the west, unquote. Thanks to the military prowess he displayed early in his reign, he was able to create an empire that extended beyond what he might have been able to physically take on his own. And while the empire itself was ephemeral, the influences of it were not. After Ram Kamhang's death, the vassals melted away. However, he was able to create a more or less permanent place for the Thai people. From Cambridge, quote, more enduring were the cultural developments stimulated by Ram Kamhang's authority in the area of religion, literature, and sculpture. The type of Thai culture destined to be generalized under the rubric of Siamese or Thai can be distinguished from this time at Sukhothai, unquote. His lasting legacy was to help set a marker down that defined the Thai culture, something that would remain beyond his lifetime and his kingdom and persist to today. Next episode, we'll move west in Asia and forward about four centuries to a great military leader 
who was able to take his shrinking and disintegrating empire and grow it to the peak of its size and power. Thanks for listening. <laughs>